Um, so uh, Supreme Court made a decision regarding the mandate, and a handful of you contacted me and um, had various reactions. I just want to be clear that the fight's not over. Um, uh, not even in the medical community, which affects some of you, because uh, while the Supreme Court said that the mandate can be enforced in the medical community, they specifically said with the allowances for medical and religious exemptions, whereas the governor of our state is refusing to grant, well, mostly all of those, but in particular, no religious exemptions whatsoever. Uh, so uh, that's a violation of uh, Title VII uh, under uh, the Labor Code, and that's a federal law that cannot be violated. So you're, you're looking at a constitutional issue that is still in the courts. Um, we have friends uh, who are... Uh, John Doe, number one, in the case that is going to the Supreme Court, and I contacted him as soon as the mandate came down and asked, you know, am I correct in this? And he said, absolutely, and they've spoken to their lawyers, and the game is still on. Okay. Uh, so Thursday, Janet Mills announces, uh, you know, victory and uh, immediately goes to the courts and says that they're going to be filing a petition to have the court case dismissed as though they've won, okay? Which is how they've reacted all along the way, which is how tyrants act all along the way. They act like they're in control and everyone has to listen to them. So, uh, in my opinion, and this isn't like a thus saith the Lord thing, in my opinion, what you're going to see is eventually Janet Mills is going to be made to conform to the federal law. That's, that's, that's the way it works. Uh, so nothing has changed about the federal law, and they have to grant. And, and in this decision, the Supreme Court specifically reiterated right, that medical and religious exemptions must be honored. So uh, what's going on is a bunch of people are panicking, saying, okay, well, there, i got to go get the vaccine. There's nothing I can do about it. Or i got to quit my job, and they quit their job. Uh, you know, They don't like it when uh, people like us stand up here and say things like, tell all your friends. Tell all your friends, make them fire you. Make them fire you. Why? Because they're already starting court cases for wrongful firing. So you get all your wages back and you can get punitive damages. I literally, you know, and you may think this frivolous, I, I literally saw a woman's court case, uh, uh, was it Lanham, Booker, and somebody. So Lanham is one of the lawyers in Bangor who's taking up these court cases. And um, uh, punitive damages. Uh, this woman uh, has been uh, suffering from insomnia. She has, uh, she's gained 20 pounds. Okay. Uh, the stress, the isolation, she's suing for all of that. So she's suing for wages and damages. They, what they're doing is breaking the law and they're torturing people, right? You know, you've worked your life to gain a career and then worked in your life investing in that career and now somebody comes along and just kicks the stuffing out of it. So stand your ground in your faith, right? right? You know, you labor to build a house in vain if, if the Lord is not with you in it. So, so, you know, stick your face, you know, guys coming to me and saying, well, you know, I was hoping for this exemption or that exemption, uh, but I'm not religious and to which I said, it's time to get religious, you know, come to church, start letting the Lord minister to you, get in the fight. So that's your sermon at, I don't know if that's sermon at, that's probably just your current events, uh, you know, sort of presentation. Deuteronomy chapter 29 is where we are, and we're going to pick up at verse 1. Uh, Moses is recounting the law. Um, it's what Deutimus, uh, you know, dual, second, the accounting of the law is what we're looking at. And interestingly enough, 
chapter 29 and 30 are a very interesting consolidation of all of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So uh, if it wasn't, uh, you know, how, how do they say, you know, unpacked neatly enough uh, for you, uh, then Moses is going to do it again right here. He's, he's going to boil the thing down uh, for you to understand. And, uh, you know, for any that think, oh, well, Old Testament, how much application does it have? Very poignant uh, for us, uh, very applicable for our lives and our circumstances here today. So Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 1, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now, if you're thinking like, yep, Old Testament, Old Covenant, not applicable. Uh, we are in the New Testament, the New Covenant, you know, bread and wine, communion. But you've got to understand it's not that this has been, uh, uh, you know, uh, thrown away, done away with. It's that it's completed in our covenant. These things are finished in what Jesus saw. The superior, very first miracle that he uh, uh, accomplishes there at the wedding of Cana and Galilee. It, you know, the, the symbolism is that what comes after is better than what came previous. And so the superior comes when the inferior is no longer needed. So we have the superior covenant, which encapsulates what is here. Verse 2. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before the before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all the servants and to all his land. Particularly, we're talking about the ten plagues, but all that the Lord did in confronting the nation of Egypt for their wickedness against the nation of Israel and their defiance of Moses. So it's an all-encapsulating view all the way up to where the Red Sea collapses and drowns the Egyptian army. Uh, you know, the Lord is saying through Moses to the nation of Israel, remember all that? Remember what the Lord did in the process of dealing with that? The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive the eyes and to see and ears to hear to this very day. Um, if you take a hyper-Calvinistic view of what is being said there, then the fact that the people do not recognize what the Lord is doing is God's fault. God has not given them the eyes to see. Okay, so I'll, I'll explain that a little further. Um, you know, we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the Calvinistic approach is to say, we have no choice in the matter. God is sovereign and that he does these things, and we have no controls whatsoever over them. Uh, the scripture teaches both things. God is sovereign, and these things are predestined, but we must also make choices. We have to react properly to the Lord. Uh, the illustration I often use is concrete. You know, uh, the, the sun hardens concrete, ice. The sun melts ice. The sun isn't behaving any differently on the ice as it is the concrete. The difference is the condition of the material. Uh, are you going to react to God and soften your heart and open your ear and open your eye and listen and see what he's saying? <clears throat> or are you rebellious and hard-hearted and stiff-necked and going to become rigid and resistant and defiant of what he has to do? So this idea that God has not given them, God's character doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. These people aren't seeing, can't see, can't hear. Why? Because they're not listening. They're not paying attention. So here, the Lord is saying, I haven't given you that. You know, you haven't reacted that way. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. Now, there's some discussion uh, that, um, you know, God did a supernatural thing and, and literally as they grew, their sandals grew. Um, 
I mean, if you're a newborn, your sandals aren't going to fit you when you're, you know, 50 years old. My suspicion is that there was a continuous thrift store happening where as people passed away, their materials became available. But it is miraculous, right, that that which Israel had was sustained for 40 years. And, and I think more, if that is the case, that it serves as a testimony, right? If you're looking for shoes to fit you, it's because someone's no longer using those shoes. And the reason they're not using those shoes anymore is because they rebelled against God and didn't get to enter into the promised land. Okay, so there's a testimony speaking to them of God's miraculous provision of the materials and resources that they have, the clothes and the shoes not wearing out, right? But there's also a testimony not for them in that positive sense, but against them in that, you know, we wouldn't have to be living this way if we had simply believed God's promises and entered into the land as he had told us that we could. So however you want to slice that up, uh, this sustenance that God is giving them is a testimony against them. It's, it's, it's speaking for them and against them. God's provision is here, and yet you're also suffering because of the circumstance. So here, your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Uh, his provision and the sobriety of their circumstances. Very bland, right? Manna, that was one of their complaints. <laughs> you know, all we have is this stinking, rotten manna. You know, it's weird to read it and have them complain about God's provision, but I recognize myself in those circumstances where we, in the flesh, in our sinfulness, tire of God's provision. And our flesh doesn't want the things of the Lord. You know, we look for the things of the world and we suffer the consequences there also. So I've sustained you. And when you came to this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle and we conquered them. Do you see the inclusion of God in that? We, we. They came out against us, and we conquered them, right? Because without God in the we, then there's no them, right? They get conquered in the process, and so it is with you and I. You know, when the things hit us, we can have victory with the Lord. But if it's us on our own, guaranteed uh, conquering defeat is what's going to lie in your path for sure. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. My temptation is to preach a whole sermon on those two and a half tribes and the fact that they came to the border of the promised land and once having conquered these kings, they were herdsmen and the region was rich pasture land and they make the decision of, hey, we don't want to go any further. We would prefer to stay on this side of the Jordan and just enjoy this land that the Lord has put in our hands. We don't want to cross over. God gets very angry with them. He allows it to occur because they're refusing to enter into the land of God's promises. He makes the command of them that they can have the land if their fighting men will cross the Jordan and battle all of the Canaanites with the other tribes to conquer that land. And once they've received their inheritance, then they can return to their location. That two and a half tribes becomes the land of the Gadareans. You might immediately think of the demon-possessed man and the Gadarean tombs. It's there. And so interesting, right? Because these are Israeli uh, tribes, they're raising pigs there in that region, which 
some people make a conflict over whether Jews were or were not or even presently are or are not uh, allowed to or supposed to by law have pigs, raise pigs, a number of different aspects to that all. I think we can say in agreement that according to the law, pigs are not kosher and not part of the diet for the nation of Israel. And what we know historically is they came into the Gadarean countryside after those two and a half tribes returned from their captivity. They were conquered by the Syrians first because they were on the far side of the Jordan that made them much more vulnerable to the onslaught of invading nations. They didn't have their neighbors from the nation of Israel all around them. Any of those defensive tribes that might have come to help them would have had to cross the Jordan to be of assistance. So they isolate themselves away from the rest of the tribes, and they suffer attack, and they go to the Syrians, and the Syrians worship pigs. When they come home, they bring the pigs with them. And when we see them next in the New Testament, they're known for the demon-possessed man that lives in their midst. And it's so interesting to me as you study those passages that when Jesus is met by the demon-possessed man, he's screaming and begging Jesus to leave and saying, I don't want anything to do with you. Jesus casts out the demon. They go into the swine. The swine drown in the sea. When the people come out to greet Jesus, they say, please leave. We don't have anything to do with you. It's the same message that the demons had that were inside the man that was possessed. Uh, the spiritual condition of the community has become similar and the same, whether they're demon-possessed or just pig farmers. This, the message is the same. Go away. We don't want anything to do with you. So uh, those remain upon that side and take their inheritance there. Therefore, keep the words of the covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Summary, remember the rock from which you were healed, the mire from which you were dug, the place that God brought you out of, and the things he's brought you through, right? You can sit here today, leave, maybe even get depressed about, I'm not doing well spiritually. I should be doing better. And let's face it, if you're thinking that, clearly you should. But let's measure accurately. Where were you before you met the Lord? That was a wretched place. And I guarantee if you measure the distance from where you were to where you are, there's lots of milestones along the way, right? There's a progress that the Lord is accomplishing in your life. And he's reminding them to look at that, the things the Lord has done. Verse 10. All of you stand today before the Lord your God. Your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel. Leadership, oh, biblical leadership. That is necessary. Every one of us is a leader. Every single one of us. We have people that are under our influence. We have a sphere of influence ourselves. But we also have those that are over us and we can choose who they are we should be very careful to make sure that those leaders stand before the lord that they are men and women whose lives are focused on the worship of jesus christ i, I caution you caution you right you go searching for some insight online and up pops the most popular header and you read that and think ah oh, that's something that i could incorporate maybe you don't want to because you don't know the resource that is provided to that you'd be much better off to keep the things right you don't need to know what survey cosmopolitan magazine or you know what other thing you know giving you marital advice on financial whatnot no you, you need the Lord's counsel. Psalm 1, blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That means you're going to have to examine the lives that are resources of information. Look, look at their behavior. You've got to look at their behaviors. 
You know, I see, I hear a lot of people who are like, oh, have you listened to so-and-so's blog? Have you read such-and-such of this? Did you see so-and-so's post? Okay. Uh, yeah, well, it's conservative politically. You know, their information might sound godly, but what is their character specifically? Right? If they're not a person that's submitted to Jesus Christ, you don't want to be walking in their footsteps. Here, call all of the leadership before me, your officers, elders, men of Israel, your little ones and your wives also. The stranger was in the camp from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws the water, that you may enter into a covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today. That you may establish, that he may establish you today as a people for himself, that he may be God to you, just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Stand up here and make a public proclamation of your obedience to the Lord. Uh, our New Testament application, right? Romans chapter ten, verse nine. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. <clears throat> you know, that, that whole concept of, oh, I'm a silent witness. Okay. Again, the term witness there means martyr. Right? That, that you would give your life for your God and your king. You don't do that silently. The world gets to see you making that sacrifice. But more applicably... It's the idea of going to court and someone testifying on your behalf. You've been accused of murder and your life is on the line and your friend knows that you're innocent and when they take the stand and they're asked to testify on your behalf, they say, well, really, I like to be a silent witness. No, thank you. You need to share with the court right now the thing that would testify of my innocence. We need to declare to the world that Jesus Christ is our Lord. That, that, that needs to be a public proclamation of our faith, not a thing that we keep relegated to the secrecy of our private life. It needs to be out in the public. You know, maybe you're not a person that's especially bold and especially forthcoming. I'm not saying your personality needs to be changed. You know, if you're more shy, that the Lord accepts that. But it does need to be public that you're a believer. I, I worked with a guy years ago uh, for five weeks of training. And I'm sharing the Lord with him off and on throughout this whole process. And we get to the end of five weeks and we're in a conversation with another group of Christians from Calvary Chapel. He's been my, been my trainer for five weeks. And out of the blue, he says, oh, I'm a believer. And I was like, really? Wow. I, I spent five weeks with you and I've been sharing the Lord. You know, and, and, and we go through this whole thing. And he tells me, no, I attend this church like every week. And, I'm just, and, and you didn't share the Lord with me. And, and I, I pointed out to him very gently I won't use his name, but I just I, I, I use his name in the discussion. And I said, guy, <clears throat> no one else in this business knows that you're a Christian. It, everyone in this business, I've only been here five weeks, and everyone in this business knows I'm a, everyone knows I'm a Christian. And these fellow believers that we were all just talking to, you've been here for years and no one knows you're a Christian. And I encourage I encouraged him. I didn't rebuke him. I encouraged him with, that needs to change in your life. You know, whether you're a big preacher or not, people need to know of your faith, right? If nothing, not, not so that you can, you know, be arrogant. Jesus warns against that, praying on the street corner and, you know, looking for the recognition. But there are people around you that may need to rely upon you. They're going to hit crisis. They're going to need answers. And they're going to be able to say, I can call this person up. I can talk to them at work and say, hey, what's up with your faith? Can, can you share? Is there something you have that you can share with me? Right? We don't have to all turn into Billy Graham suddenly, but we are a resource to the world. And it needs to be that that is known. Verse 14, I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him 
who stands here with us today before the Lord our God as well as with him who is not here with us today. The future. Clearly everyone in the past knew and embraced this covenant in their relationship. The ones that are presently there are making that commitment, but there are also those in the future. God is incorporating us today into this, you know, through the direct line that comes from, uh, you know, the Judeo-Christian belief, how it affects others. Uh, it's interesting. Um, there is a book, and I should have gotten the name of it. You can do the research on your own that details a, an owner of a shoe store who was a devout Christian, and the Lord laid it on his heart to share his faith continuously with his 14-year-old employee. And he eventually led that 14-year-old employee to the Lord. And that 14-year-old employee was D.L. Moody, right? One man sharing his faith. D.L. Moody, there is a direct line for the people he ministered to, who eventually one of the people that came to Christ through D.L. Moody's ministry led Billy Graham to the Lord. Millions. The, Billy Graham changed the spiritual atmosphere of planet Earth. Literally. Literally. One shop owner hearing from the Lord and obediently saying, I'm going to share my faith with this young man. Diligently enough that he brought him to Christ. Changed the world in the process. The Lord's covenant with you isn't just about you. There's a lineage, there's a heritage, and you should be faithful to see that done in your own life. So there are others. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among you, wood and stone and silver and gold, all the things, cars and money and bank accounts and possessions that people worship, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that they may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard should be included with the sober. Quite a statement there at the end, especially the Lord is making this proclamation in agreement with them and saying that there should be obedience because if there isn't, then it's going to produce bitterness and wormwood. Wormwood is debatable, but throughout the scripture, especially, it is described as poison. Okay, And there is an old adage that says that bitterness is the only poison we drink expecting it to kill our enemy. Right? It, it is a self-consuming thing. Look, if you are in a community of faith and not obedient to it, it will produce bitterness in you against God. It's going to. You may not ever say with your mouth or even think with your mind, I hate God. But your disobedience is poisoning you to death. It, it is tormenting the heart. It is ruining the relationship with the Lord. And, and let me just be clear, right? It, it is also infecting others. Affecting others? Our poisoned heart has the tendency to ruin others. And then he closes with that statement of saying, you know, he's thought in his own heart. And how that occurs is a person may live in rebellion to the Lord and yet be successful from a worldly point of view. Right? Well, look at what's going on. Yes, I know what the Lord has spoken to me and convicted me about personally, about the things I should be doing and the things I should not be doing, but I'm not going to do them. Regardless of how you may, I'll do them tomorrow. I'll do them later. 
but you're not presently doing them. And as a result, that rebellion in our heart poisons. And then we look around, but, but oh, look, I just got a new car. And look, I just got my cell phone. And I look, I just got a new job. And I, they just gave me new hours. And I just got benefits. And just the thought, right? He says in his own heart, things are going great. And the Lord is saying there in the end, the conclusion of, are, are the drunkards going to hang out with those that are sober? He makes it that simple. The obedient with the disobedient. See, because it isn't how we judge one another. It's how the Lord views us. I can think you're fine. You can think you're fine. But if we're not, then we have to stand before the Lord one day and give account. Honesty, right? What the Lord is doing. That New Testament statement about how God is not mocked. That what you sow, you will reap. Let's put that on the positive end this morning. Sow to the Spirit. Right? Stop sowing to the flesh. Stop sowing towards sinfulness. Sow to the Spirit. Invest in the kingdom. Be in the Word. Be in fellowship. Share your faith. Do the things the Lord has called us to do. And watch the fruitfulness in your life. Right? Because if, if we measure the fruitfulness incorrectly, we become convinced that things are going well when in fact they're going terrible. Now, the prosperity is going to come to the nation of Israel. They're going to cross the Jordan. They're going to prosper. The land's going to be fruitful. And they're going to be thinking, this is great. We're doing wonderful as they begin to engage in idolatry and deteriorate. Until they're eventually all taken away in captivity. It needs to be that we understand that prosperity and success lies solely in obedience. That's where it is. Sometimes, sometimes you guys... When we are the most obedient, that's when life is most difficult. You need to be very clear about that. Now, I want the pressure to ease up. I want, to, I want all these difficulties to go away. Sometimes, right, there's a spiritual war. There's a spiritual war going on. We have an enemy of our soul. And the more you obey the Lord, sometimes the more difficult it becomes. Not always, but sometimes. You need to be clear about that. Because if you measure according to human standards, you can deceive yourself into thinking, I'm doing just fine. When in fact, we're not. Obedience is the measure of success. 20, the Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against him. I want you to remember that phrase, his jealousy would burn against him, because we need to look at it a little bit more. And the Lord would separate from all the, him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law so that the coming generation of your children would rise up after you and then a foreigner who comes from a far land would say when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it. When the punishment comes, then it's a testimony to whoever would examine it. When a person rebels against the Lord, is disobedient, and the difficulties of the sin is produced in their lives, it stands as a testimony against them and in favor of the Lord. The statement of the jealousy burning against us, let's look at that in the New Testament, right? James tells us that the Holy Spirit yearns for us with a jealousy. Right? We, we shouldn't think of that as some selfishness in God's position. Right? If it's a selfishness, it's on our behalf. His jealous yearning for us is that we would experience his blessing. The relationship that we have with him, the fruitfulness that comes from being in fellowship with the Lord. You know, the common union, the communion of being in fellowship with Christ. Uh, you know, the jealousy is much along the lines of a husband for his wife, parents for their children. It, it isn't a selfish jealousy of rage and reaction, right? It's selfless and beneficial to any of us that would be obedient. 23, the whole land is brimstone. This is the judgment of those who would witness what has come against 
Israel because they've rebelled and deceived themselves. And now uh, anyone who wouldn't witness this later, which eventually they did, the whole land is brimstone, salt and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zebulun, uh, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. All nations would say, why has the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of his great anger mean? Then people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given them. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against the land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger and wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. You know, the uh, the whole uh, deterioration of our nation and the way that we have parted from worshiping Jesus Christ. You know, people want to debate, oh, you know, America's that founded in Christianity and, you know, Barack Obama tells the world this is not a Christian nation. We hear all these different debates and rumors and innuendos. Well, look, uh, well, the pilgrims are really the most responsible for settling and developing this land. Can we agree upon that? And when they arrived here, I don't know if you've been down to Plymouth, Massachusetts and seen the replica of the Mayflower, but the thoughts of crossing the Atlantic Ocean on that ship is mind-numbing. Seriously. You know, putting your family down in the cargo hold on top of all of the cargo that was there and trying to make a home for a matter of weeks and you know, the, you know, that ship, to bring that ship, because that's a replica that was given to us uh, by England and shipmakers that built it for us and uh, brought it over here. To bring it across, they had to make modifications of including a radio and a steering wheel helm, right? Because that's oceanic law today in navigation. When they came over the first time, it was literally a tiller. So you got one straight stick and there's an, a, a, a rudder on the back and you just like move that thing. That's how they steered their way across the Atlantic. Crazy, you know, seamen, crazy, right? Absolutely nuts that they, they, they did that. They arrived here and they did not disembark. They stayed aboard the ship and they prayed and fasted until they collectively had written the Mayflower Compact. And the Mayflower Compact declared what their purposed intention in coming here was and what their motivation and behavior was going to be in being here. And you know what the summary of it is? That Jesus Christ had sent them here and that they were here to worship Jesus Christ and deliver the worship of Jesus Christ to the people of this land. This nation was born in Christianity. That's how it began. More than anything else, go home, look up Mayflower Compact, or do it right now, and read the Mayflower Compact. We are so far from that today. You know? Why? Why have hundreds of people been killed in Chicago, murdered in a single year? Because we've departed from worshiping Jesus Christ. Why are people abolishing police forces? Because we've departed from worshiping Jesus Christ. You know, uh, you know, COVID-19, nobody's talking about the fact that in the same time period, you guys, all over this nation, there has been a massive increase in death. And the, the covid uh, responsibilities are incredibly small percentages. So during the same pandemic, and I'm, I don't believe that, but I'm just, they, 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 they're labeled, okay? Uh, Texas, 60% increase in mortality. 14% of the 60% increase has been COVID. Remarkable. All across the nation, 30, 40, 50, 55, 60, 
you know, percent. I think 60 was the highest. Uh, COVID is always an incredibly small percentage. You know what a huge portion of it is? Overdose. You know, you know, you know where the overdose is coming from? China. No, 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 no questions. We don't have to wonder about what lab produced what. We know with a certainty, with an absolute certainty, that the fentanyl is coming from China. And we know with an absolute certainty that it is coming across the Mexican border. No questions. Texas, 60% increase in mortality. 14% COVID. Where's that in the news? Right? Right now, pandemic, there's a pandemic of fentanyl that no one's discussing. Right now, COVID is such a small problem in comparison to these other issues. Why? Because this nation stopped worshiping Jesus Christ. That's why. The things listed here, it's going to be a testimony to everyone who sees it, who watches our deterioration. May we not be part of it. May we be the remnant who recognizes our own flaws and turns our heart to the Lord. Amen? So, here, they've departed. 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the Lord. Seems a little out of place as far as a verse in context. I'll give you another verse. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 says, It is the glory of the Lord to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to search it out. We are called to be leaders. We are a kingdom of priests, according to Jesus Christ. We should be seeking out the things of the Scripture. When people are around you saying, What is this world coming to? You need to be right there with the answer. Explaining to them why the deterioration, why we are in the circumstances that we are, and how we can avert it. Turn our hearts back to worshiping the Lord. Chapter 30, verse 1, Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the cursing which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, once you've fallen into sin and I've driven you out, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. So what a great proclamation. You're going to fail miserably and be driven into slavery. But when you repent, <laughs> when you come to your senses, some of us can testify adamantly about that, right? When you come to your senses, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. And have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you. And the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers and the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts in the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So, there came a period of time in world history where the language of the scripture was lost and the common people didn't read the word of God. And then, of course, Martin Luther, remarkable uh, transformation of the scripture as he goes through a process of gathering especially all the languages and dialect of German, and he fashions a singular form of German all in a matter of months and then translates the Bible into German. Simultaneously, the printing press is coming online and the Bibles begin to be produced worldwide so that people can read in the common tongues uh, the Bible. Right As... This is occurring, all of these occasions, speaking of Israel and the promises that God has given, these included, Israel doesn't exist. And so a doctrine is born in Christianity that says all of those former verses pertaining to Israel must now pertain to the church. 
and a false doctrine is born out of that, replacement theology that does away with Israel and elevates the church to a place that belongs to Israel. From that is birthed out all kinds of concepts, like they get rid of the concept of the rapture of the church because somehow that must be relegated to what happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed because Israel is no more, so these things can't pertain properly. So Christian doctrine gets dramatically warped as a process of that. It takes time to where the realignment and realization is that, no, this does actually pertain to Israel. And it does actually realign itself. Uh, of course, May 14th, 1948, Israel is born again. Brought back. In particular, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, uh, simply to mean the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. That's not what happened when Israel went into captivity the first time. Notice, I will gather them a second time, right? And they're going to come from all over the world, including all of the nations. That's not what happened in the first one. The captivity was very specifically Babylon, and they were restored. So, so the misinterpretation of those that were reading the Bible that are saying, oh, no, no, all this restoration is speaking of when the Lord restored them back into the land the first time. No, there's a second time that occurred. You know, David Ben-Gurion, May 14, 1948, declared the nation as Israel. It was known as Palestine, right? He declared it to be Israel because of what the prophets said. He specifically said he was naming it Israel as their first prime minister because of what the prophets said. Particularly, Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, right? Not the mountains of Palestine, the mountains of Israel and the valleys and all the inhabited places of the country. He also looked at Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3, that said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Israel is my people, and I'm going to bring them back to this location. So the Lord's restoration of Israel realigns everything in the Scripture. Uh, keep this in mind for yourself. Let's move forward with just a bit more. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and those who hate you. So everything that we've read, right, blessings and cursings, the curses are going to come upon their enemies. Two movies that I would, they're documentaries that I want to recommend to you. There's a movie, 2014, uh, called Above and Beyond. There's lots of movies regarding Israel, but particularly since 1948 and things that have gone on there. The movie Above and Beyond is about the development of the Israeli Air Force. And it is amazing. Amazing how the Lord did that and what he did with the Israeli Air Force to protect and preserve the nation of Israel. Secondly, if you've drifted off and haven't noticed anything, please take attention to this movie called Above All Odds, subtitle Israel Survives. That gives a description of God's divine protection of Israel since 1948. I've described before you, uh, for you before a squad of soldiers that were carrying out their mission and they got overrun and had to run into the darkness in hiding. And as they lay there uh, in the darkness, in plain view, but they're in, in the darkness, so they're, they're secluded in that way, they realize that what they've run into and what they're, where they're presently hiding is in a minefield. 
They're surrounded by hundreds of Russian mines. And they have no ability to leave. So they can't get off and get up and skulk off into the darkness. They have to just stay right there. And it's in plain view of a road. Well, uh, the vehicles leave and they have the opportunity to get up. But of course, now they're in a minefield and this huge storm comes up. And they end up having to just literally lay face down on the ground to protect themselves from the sandstorm that occurs. And after it's blown over, it's starting to become morning light. They look up and all of the mines are now completely exposed. The wind has blown all of the sand away and they're laying on the ground and they can see where every single one of the mines is. They were able to just walk out of the minefield. That, that's one example of the things in the movie. Okay, God, God has built, protected, restored, and protected this nation. And it's very important for us to understand that all of those promises to the nation of Israel bear the residual effect upon us. This is the God we serve. We're here this morning worshiping that God. This message is, in fact, to us. So, verse 8. Uh, we're just going to go to verse 20. It's not long. Stay with me. You will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as you rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of of, in this book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul, I'll make you fruitful. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, cause you to be a, an abund- a land of abundance. Once again, the nation of Israel is the third largest producer of food in the world. In the world. It's a little smaller than Rhode Island. Right? United States and Russia often swap who's first as far as grain and food production, cattle, livestock, the whole nine yards. Israel is a little smaller than Rhode Island, and it's the third largest producer of food in the world. The world should take notice of that. You know, when you fly into Tel Aviv, you can see where the borders of Israel are because everything around it is brown and it's green. God is divinely blessed. By the Lord in what he's doing. It's a remarkable, miraculous thing. 30 verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. You you don't have to look far for the answers, right? Just open the book. Just open the book. You know, I've said many times when we drift from the Lord, right? You know, I'm uh, just busy. I got up late. I got to go. I, I can't. I can't spend time. And the word becomes two days very easily. Becomes two weeks without even really thinking about it. Can become months and years. And then you look at the dusty book, if you even still know where it is anymore. And it seems like it would take the effort of 20 men to get it off the shelf and open the cover. Right? I dare you to just go over and get the thing and open it up. The very first place you open to, just start reading. I guarantee it will minister to you. It's remarkable. It's remarkable how if we would just apply ourselves. You know, we, we are you know in this famine of not obeying. Verse 15, so I see I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, 
and that the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and you uh, and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish and you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. He, he makes it, that's not a mystery, it's not hard. I'm setting it right in front of you and I'm labeling it, right? It's not like, well, they're identical. I can't tell which one is good. I can't tell which one is bad. I can't tell which one is going to bless me and which one is going to curse me. No, no. This one has a skull and crossbone on it, right? And this one is radiating the glory of God. You can experience life or death, blessing or cursing. What do you want? Right? You know, If we convince ourselves, oh, I can just do this and it's not going to harm me, you know? I mean, I can have this relationship even though I know it's forbidden in the Scripture. I'm just going to go ahead. You know, after all, we're married in our hearts. You know, I mean, I want to smoke this. I mean, after all, it's natural. Right? You know, all these different things, right? And the Lord is just blatantly saying, you know, you know what the blessing is and you know what the cursing is. It's very obvious. Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? Because that's how it comes down, right? Romans 6.16 is saying to us, you know, that you're going to serve either obedience or disobedience and you'll experience either, you know, blessing or cursing. You're going to experience righteousness or death. Obedience produces life. Disobedience produces death. It's very simple. We, we need to become obedient. Verse 20 that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. Obedience. This is God's plea. This is God's plea. It isn't a demand. There's, there's no lording over. There's not even, it may, you may read it that way, but there's not even any threat in this. He's, he's telling you, right? You know, that game show where you get to choose what behind, you know, what door, that used to drive me crazy. I don't know about you. You've already you got $50,000. Don't bet. You know what I'm saying? Just take the money and run. Uh, just, it's crazy. And you got to choose the door, and sure enough, you know, you just lose everything. Uh, why? Because you can't see what's behind the door. The Lord doesn't do that to us. There's no trickery. There's no sleight of hand, right? This isn't three-card Monty. He's telling you right where the blessing is and right where the cursing is. Obedience is what he's calling us to. This, this is the loving plea of a heavenly father this is the loving plea of a groom for his bride saying please choose the good oh you guys we need to do that with our lives and and let the world what see what that produces in our lives in our environment in our circumstances so that as they're consuming the curse they can go say hey, something's up here how is it that you are experiencing blessing in the midst of all this torment? Because the Lord is in our lives. Make sense? We understand? Choose life is what he says. So we'll pick up with chapter 31 next week. That's what we got for this week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Blessing and curse is laid out plainly before us. The Lord is so gracious with us and wants us to experience his life and his blessing. Lord, we thank you for your word and the simplicity of it. We thank you for being so understanding with us that you would make the circumstances that easy to see. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to you. Lord, our flesh is deceptive and our desires at times are strong. 
Lord, we bow to your authority and we ask that you would change us, overcome our desires. Lord, for any of us that have never surrendered our lives to you, help us the strength and power, guidance and love of your Holy Spirit that we would give in, cave in to your love, to your will for our lives. We present ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.